Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 60, Henrietta Maria of France, the happiest and most fortunate of queens. Last week, we left Henrietta Maria after she had been defeated by the king's favourite, the Duke of Buckingham, in a palace struggle over the makeup of her household. In her marriage treaty, she had been guaranteed freedom to practice her Catholicism freely in Protestant England, and the right to be served exclusively by French men and women. Charles's decision to side with Buckingham was not only a gross betrayal by her husband against his wife, it effectively marooned her in a foreign land where she had few friends. It was a big come-down for an exalted princess of France, let alone someone who was barely 16. In today's episode, we're going to look at Henrietta's time as queen, from where we left off last time, up until when all hell breaks loose at the start of the 1640s. Henrietta Maria was not one to flinch in a crisis, nor was she someone who meekly accepted her fate. She may have had a terrible start to her time as queen, but she was determined to persist and become the queen that she thought that she ought to be, and stand by her own beliefs. To do so, she needed to build a base of support in England, and the first step was to surround herself with people whom she could trust. Since almost all her French ladies had gone, she needed English supporters. As I mentioned, Buckingham had placed a number of ladies around Henrietta who were loyal to him, but that did not stop Henrietta from winning some over. Most prominent among them was Lucy Hay, the Countess of Carlisle. She was reportedly Buckingham's mistress, but she and Henrietta quickly became... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Close friends, despite her being a staunch Protestant. She also befriended the Countess of Denby, Buckingham's daughter, as well as Henry Jemin, a influential MP who served as her vice chamberlain. Even with all of these buildings' relationships, though, it was clear that any attempt to improve her situation with the king would always be blocked by Buckingham. But luckily for her, that blockage was about to be removed by an assassin's knife. Buckingham was not just unpopular with the queen. He was hated by great swathes of the population. And in August 1628, he was killed in a pub in Portsmouth by an angry ex-army officer. Charles was devastated by the news. When he heard of the murder, Charles, quote, suddenly departed to his chamber and threw himself upon his bed, lamenting with much passion and with much abundance of tears. And he continued in this melancholic discomposure of mind many days. Seeing this opportunity while her husband was vulnerable, Henrietta stepped in. A friend of hers wrote that in the aftermath of Buckingham's assassination, quote, Her Majesty went personally to visit and console the Duke's relations, and act upon her part, which has greatly gratified the king, by whom she's more than ever beloved. And were she not so youthful, and so carried away with her companionships, it would be an easy matter for her to make the king do whatever she pleased, so much is he attached to her. It is said that Charles was a man who could only ever let one other person truly into his confidence and affections at one time. For the first part of his life, it was his mother, then Buckingham, and now Henrietta saw an opportunity to win the heart of her husband. While Charles and Henrietta had hardly had a fairy tale marriage up until that point, contemporaries had always noted that they shared a certain spark. According to one of her biographers, Dominic Pierce, quote, The marriage had always been based on strong attraction and sympathy, even though their terrible quarrels sometimes looked like the end. As is so often the case, the rows were caused by emotional bonds which were never to be broken. She was only 18, but after three years of marriage, she understood quite well how her husband's shyness, lack of confidence and flexibility were destructive companions to his adamantine sense of royal entitlement. Every courtier noticed it. Buckingham's death saw a decisive shift of influence over the king to Henrietta. One noted that Charles lay with Henrietta every night, something that we take for granted today, but was extremely unusual at the time. A way of seeing Henrietta's new elevated position is to look at how the centre of gravity at court shifted over the next few months and years. No new Buckingham really emerged, and while Henrietta was the king's closest confidant, she never used her powers and position as overtly as he had done. That said, ambitious courtiers began to gravitate towards her, seeing that a position in her household was a solid way of rising up the greasy pole. She started hearing more and more petitions and requests, as this was seen as a way of shortcutting your way through the bureaucracy and gaining a direct line to the king. 
It was an extraordinary transformation in her fortunes in just a few months. These people included a number of men who were very close to Buckingham, including Henry Rich, the Earl of Holland, who served as her high steward. Together they all formed a political faction that tends to be called the Pro-War Party, as their principal foreign policy goal was to sign a formal alliance with France and recover the Palatinate from the Austrian Habsburgs. In these years, the closest political rival that Henrietta had was the Earl of Portland, who led the pro-peace faction, who wished to maintain peace with Spain, something that would undoubtedly be shattered if the pro-French people got their own way. Interestingly, Portland was probably a closet Catholic and would indeed convert on his deathbed, but he was very strict on enforcing anti-Catholic laws, especially those preventing English Catholics from attending Henrietta's church services. He was also Lord Treasurer, and was largely responsible for keeping Henrietta's profligate spending in check, something that she did not particularly appreciate. While Henrietta was Charles's closest friend and companion, this did not lead to her dominating his domestic or foreign policy. Indeed, it was carefully balanced between these two factions. This led to a political situation that was at once fairly stable, but in constant danger of rupture. This factionalism became bitter very quickly, and was deeply tied up with foreign policy and the politics of France. In 1630, Henrietta's mother, Maria de' Medici, finally lost her court struggle against her son's chief minister, Cardinal Richelieu, and was exiled. This left Henrietta's loyalties divided between her brother and Richelieu on one side and her mother on the other, and she chose her mother. Portland accused Henrietta and her steward Henry Rich of conspiring to bring down the cardinal and Portland in a great international conspiracy, an accusation that wasn't too far from the truth. Well, Rich, in an attempt to defend the Queen's honour, challenged Portland to a duel in a message that was conveyed by Henry Jemin. Portland accepted, but also made sure that the king knew, hoping that he would come down hard on the challenger. Another member of the Queen's household, George Goring, who you Civil War fans will know very well, started spreading muck about, mocking Portland's honour and basically calling him a coward. This led to one of Portland's friends to challenge him to a duel as well, which was also accepted. So I think we can all agree that things are getting a little out of hand here. And the king did, as Portland expected, come down hard on the Queen's men, imprisoning both Rich and Jemin. And this was just one example, though admittedly the most scandalous, of this factional conflict. But it also shows how Henrietta managed to engender so much loyalty from her own supporters. She managed to get Rich's sentence changed to a mere banishment to his estates, and Jemin's imprisonment was made fairly brief, and both returned to high positions within her household. And these were the more reputable of her supporters. She patronised and favoured a number of, well, I shall call them rakish scoundrels to be nice. There was the poet William Davenant, who left a great pile of empty bottles and pregnant mistresses in his wake, and yet still managed to get the position of poet laureate. Then there was the amusingly named poet John Suckling, who was a drunk and inveterate gambler, who used marked cards and other dishonest ways of cheating nobles out of thousands of pounds at a card game that he invented that we still play to this day, cribbage. Then there was George Goring, who I've already mentioned. His marriage had brought him a large dowry, which he promptly wasted on gambling and women, leading to his father buying him a commission in the Dutch army just to stop him being such a stain on his name. All of these men, and there were plenty more, lived and debauched under the protection of Henrietta. 
loyalty for the Queen became a two-edged sword, a virtue that saw supporters flock to her and remain with her through it all, but it also saw her tolerate behaviour that many found distasteful and blackened her name. But of course, influence over the King in this way was only one string to her queenly bow. Her marriage to Charles may not have quite brought the military help that they had wanted, but she had brought a great deal of prestige over as the daughter and sister of French kings. The main duty of queenship, though, of course, was to produce heirs, and she did not disappoint in this regard. You may remember from the last episode that in the first year or so of her time as queen, she had fallen under the influence of some radical monks, who had instructed her to abstain from sex on a great number of specified days of the year for religious reasons. Well, after her rapprochement with Charles following the death of Buckingham, she loosened these rules, and not long after, she gave birth to her first son. But sadly, he died after only a few hours of life. Her mother, assuming that Henrietta would be inconsolable with grief, offered to send her over a bishop to offer her counsel and support. Henrietta replied to her defiantly, saying that she wasn't a child anymore. The death of a firstborn child was considered a very bad sign for a woman's ability to give birth to healthy children, making this a potentially dangerous time for Henrietta. But as we know, she never shied away from a fight. And she proved her toughness when, only a few months after this tragedy, she conceived another child, and this one was born healthy. He was given the same name as both his dead brother and his father, Charles. In a letter to Henrietta's mother after the birth of their son, King Charles wrote, quote, Thank God, she's so careful of herself that I have no need to use other authority than that of love. The only dispute that now exists between us is that of conquering each other by affection, both esteeming ourselves victorious in following the will of the other. Isn't that just so sweet? Well, less sweet was Henrietta's description of her son to her friend Jean Saint-Georges after she spent some time with him. Quote, If my son knew how to talk, I think he would send you his compliments. He is so fat and so tall that he is taken for a year old and he's only four months. His teeth are already beginning to come. I will send you his portrait as soon as he is a little fairer, for at present he is so dark that I am ashamed of him. Wow. Well, worse was to come. A little while later, after his hair remained stubbornly dark, she wrote to her friend, quote, He is so ugly that I am ashamed of him, but his size and fatness supply the want of beauty. Henrietta certainly was a judgmental and sharp-tongued gossip when she wanted to be, but in her defence, what she describes as fatness was actually considered to be a good thing, a sign of a healthy boy. She would go on to have nine children in all. Three of them, including the first Charles, died young, but the rest survived. These included not only the future Charles II, but also James, who would succeed him, Mary, whose later marriage to the Prince of Orange would bring about the claim that would lead to the Glorious Revolution, and three others, Elizabeth, Henry, and Henrietta. You may notice from their names the closeness of the mother and father. Two were named for the father, three for the mother. There is not much attention in the sources that I have read given to Henrietta as a mother, with much more focus given to her relationship with her husband, but we do have a few bits and pieces here and there for her during her childbearing years. One famous example is a letter that she wrote to her son Prince Charles when he was around eight or so. Remember that she had already by now lost two children to childbirth, so she was very sensitive to any danger to the health of her eldest son, and yet news reached her that he was rejecting the attentions of his doctors. She wrote to him the following, quote, 
Charles, I am sorry that I must begin my first letter with chiding you, because I hear that you will not take physic. I hope it was only for this day, and that tomorrow you will do it, for if you do not, I must come to you and make you take it, for it was for your health. As was customary, the royal children were raised by their own households, away from the court, but we do have evidence of them regularly visiting and dining with their parents, with writers remarking of the strong family bond that existed between them, something that, again, was far from usual in this period. All through these childbirths, the royal couple were inseparable, and there was rarely more than a few months' gap between the birth of one child and the conception of the next, always a sign of a husband and wife that were having plenty of sex. And there are so many little anecdotes that we can find that demonstrate just how in love and devoted this couple were. For example, Henrietta liked to play little practical jokes on Charles, once tricking him into gambling with her over a gold crucifix, letting him win, and then putting him in the awkward position of whether it would be gentlemanly or not to keep it. The sources abound with people remarking on their love, and this is a sign of just how rare love was in a noble marriage. Think back on all our queens. How many have actually liked their husbands? Not all that many. Okay, how many have actually loved their husbands, as in shared a strong emotional bond with them? It's a very small number, but Charles and Henrietta were one such couple. This is not just a quirk of English royal marriages. A French diplomat remarked upon their habit of kissing often and repeatedly in public, saying, quote, You don't see that in Turin? And then, in a low voice, quote, In Paris either! Referring to the loveless marriages of Henrietta's sister and brother. Henrietta wrote to a friend, quote, Not only had I every pleasure the heart could desire, I had a husband who adored me. Indeed, she described herself at this time as being, quote, the happiest and most fortunate of queens. Now, to modern ears, these things sound not only adorable, but undeniably positive, right? Think how many politicians all like to promote themselves as good family people, showing off their spouses and attractive children on the stage when they want our votes. Well, in Stuart times, this wasn't so much the case, especially not when it came to women. There were frequent complaints from opponents of the king that he was far more in love with her than she with him, and that she was expertly manipulating him for her own ends. As we will see, Henrietta tends to get a lot of the blame about many of Charles's most unpopular policies, especially those concerning religion and war. Again, we are seeing here a constant theme that we have seen when it comes to assigned gender roles throughout history, that are as true today as they were in Henrietta's day, and as they were back when we started in the 11th century. Men were expected to do man things, women to do woman things. In this time, this means that they were expected to keep their noses out of war and politics and leave it to their husbands. It took a special kind of woman and a special set of circumstances for women to be allowed to have influence and wield real political power, and even then they were rarely popular while doing it. A frequent criticism of Henrietta was that she was emasculating her husband at acting as a man. Here are a few quotes from contemporary figures and historians. Lucy Hutchinson, the writer and poet, talked of Charles being, quote, enslaved in his affection towards her. An anti-royalist pamphlet stated that, quote, some say she is the man and reigns. This was exacerbated by the fact that from 1629, Charles had dismissed Parliament and entered 12 years of personal rule, meaning that any decisions that the people disagreed with could only be blamed on his administration. 
But since it was dangerous to criticise the king openly, you get around it by blaming evil counsellors. And since Henrietta was his closest confidant, she got the lion's share of the blame. So why was this? Well, she never really made a concerted effort to ingratiate herself with the English. She had won over her husband and certain sections of the court, but never the nobility at large and certainly not the people. This was for a few reasons. The first is something that I touched on last time. Language. When she arrived in the country, she did not speak a word of English, and she made very little effort to learn the language. French was widely understood and spoken frequently at court, and so she seems to have viewed it as unnecessary. Yet this was a huge mistake, as it aided anyone painting her as a foreign agitator. Even decades into her time as queen, she was writing in French to English correspondents, and those letters that she did write in English tended to be of poor quality, littered with spelling mistakes and grammatical errors. The second was her open and total distaste for Protestant ceremony. While few people were expecting her to convert, it was thought that she would at least attend Protestant ceremonies and play along. But again, she did not see the opportunities that this bit of compromise would bring, and instead steadfastly refused. We talked last time about her absence from Charles's coronation, which was an enormous blunder because it was a Protestant service. Well, when Charles travelled north of the border to be crowned King of Scots in 1633, she refused to go again. To her Protestant subjects, which was most of them, this was a sign of the manifest contempt that they felt she held them in. And then there is just silly stuff. Quite early on in her reign, while on progress, one of her ladies, the Countess of Denby, arranged for a Protestant ceremony to be carried out. Now, protocol dictated that she had to ask Henrietta's permission to do such a thing. But, for whatever reason, she neglected to do so. Put out by this, Henrietta and her French friends deliberately and incredibly rudely disrupted the service by, and I'm not making this up, walking up and down the room in which it was being held, talking and laughing very loudly, and walking their barking dogs. So, Henrietta was not endearing herself to those she came in contact with. But the third problem was almost the opposite of this. She wasn't visible enough to the public. Remember, this was a time before mass media, before newspapers and magazines, let alone the internet. To be loved by the people you had to be seen with their own eyes, or that of a friend or family member. It is very difficult to feel an attachment to, and an affinity for, someone if they appear remote to you. That is why the ceremonial entry into London was always such an important part of the coronation ceremony or the arrival of a new king or queen. Yet after her own entry into London, Henrietta was almost invisible to anyone not at court. By contrast, Queen Elizabeth made great use of royal prerogatives throughout her reign and travelled all around the kingdom. According to historian Judith Richards, these progresses were for the people of England... Quote, because of zeal, as a distraction from melancholy, to act out their loyalty, to satisfy their curiosity, or find satisfaction for their wants. Yet Charles and Henrietta only went on four fairly limited progresses before civil war erupted, and this was a huge mistake, as it greatly limited their own personal popularity. Now one cannot totally blame Henrietta for this, after all it was Charles's policy not to go on these progresses. But she did have sufficient influence that if she had put her mind to it, she could have been more present to the English. The simple fact is that she didn't really much care either way how they thought of her, 
which isn't really an especially good attitude to have. Actually, to be fair, she did make an attempt to promote herself and her husband, and that was through art. Both Charles and Henrietta were active and enthusiastic patrons of artists and commissioned a lot of works featuring themselves, promoting their marriage as one of blissful domestic harmony. The most famous artist with whom she built a relationship was Anthony van Dyck, a pupil of the famous Dutch artist Rubens. She sat for him at least 25 times, sending portraits across Europe to her family and friends. Probably the most famous one is called The Great Peace, and is in the episode artwork, and is today part of the Royal Collection, hanging in Buckingham Palace. Now, really, I'm the wrong person in my family to talk about this, as my wife is a qualified art professional, but you're going to have to make do with me. It was the first time that an English king and queen were painted together as part of a loving, domestic family. They are comfortably seating with their two children, Prince Charles on the left, adorably holding his father's knee, seemingly nervously, with Princess Mary in Henrietta's arms. There are two tiny dogs playing on the ground between them, and the royal regalia of crown and scepter are to one side, emphasising that while he was a king, at that moment he was a husband and a father. While everyone else in the portrait is looking at the viewer, Henrietta, resplendent in her dress of gold damask, has only eyes for one person, her husband. After it was completed, this magnificent portrait hung in the Palace of Whitehall, and so we can see that this was how Charles and Henrietta wished to promote themselves. And she didn't stop there when it came to her artistic patronage. Along with Van Dyck, she was also a great patron of the Italian artist Orazio Gentileschi and his more famous daughter, Artemisia. Orazio Gentileschi would go on to become probably Henrietta's favourite and most prolific artist. The list of artists whom she patronised is a virtual who's who of famous contemporary artists. In this, it is likely she was influenced by her mother and her family, as the Medicis were one of the most famous art-collecting families in history. There was Benini, whom Henrietta commissioned to make a marble bust of her husband Charles. André Mollet, the great French garden designer, was commissioned to create formal gardens at St James's and at her residence of Wimbledon House. Probably the greatest commission that Henrietta ever made, however, was by an artisan architect that we are already familiar with, Inigo Jones. The former favourite designer of Anne of Denmark, Jones was tasked with making real Henrietta's idea of what she wanted the Queen's house at Greenwich to look like. And if any of you ever visit London, I would strongly recommend that you go visit it. The best bit, though, is probably the ceiling, which was painted by possibly both Gentileschis, but certainly Orazio. It is called An Allegory of Peace and the Arts. I'm not going to go into a deep dive on the art history of this, but suffice it to say that it is gorgeous, and widely believed to be Henrietta's own vision, a sign of her highly tuned artistic taste. And it wasn't just through art that she showed this off, because she had also inherited her mother-in-law's and predecessor's appreciation for the courtly mask. She even used Anne of Denmark's dream team of Ben Johnson and Inigo Jones to put on these masks, and her spending on them was just as lavish. The most notable of these was called Clorida, which was based off a story from Botticelli's Primavera. This was a story of hedonism, confession of sin, and redemption. It was an exclusive ticketed event, and the whole room was packed. Of course, as this was her event, Henrietta was centre stage in a magnificent green and gold and silver dress, and her ladies surrounded her, 
including one of her close friends, Lucy Hay, apparently all wearing shockingly low-cut dresses. According to one visitor, quote, Those who are plump and buxom show their bosoms very openly, and the lean go muffled to the throat. It was an incredible spectacle, and was followed by a raucous feast, at the end of which the whole table was turned over, smashing all the crockery and glassware. Such was the passion and excitement of everyone present. From 1630 through to the outbreak of the Civil Wars, Charles and Henrietta settled into a routine of presenting courtly masks to each other at Twelfth Night in January and Shrovetide before the beginning of Lent, representing, in the words of historian Caroline Hibbard, quote, the themes of order and harmony that were so fully realised in their own marriage. They embody ideals of platonic love in a Christian context that was much influenced by the Queen's French Catholic spirituality and devotional practice. But while these forms of self-promotion make historians salivate and whoop, especially the art, because they are wonderful and beautiful physical things to study, they were very limiting in who they could affect. Necessarily, to see these works of art or be present at the masks, you had to be in the places where they resided or occurred, generally in royal palaces, and so they were only visible to courtiers, aristocrats, and foreign visitors. They did absolutely nothing to affect the public perception of Charles and Henrietta, and the two had to go hand in hand. Without a doubt, their most important constituency, the most important people they had to impress, were the upper echelons of society, but you couldn't neglect those further down the food chain, and that is exactly what Charles and Henrietta did. That said, what was going on at court did not go completely unnoticed, but because it was invisible to so many, it allowed vicious rumour to spread very easily. In early 1633, both she and Charles performed in a pastoral mask written by Walter Montague called The Shepherd's Paradise. Montague was a close friend of the Queen's, and this play was devoted to the notions of platonic love and marital love, and is loosely based on Charles's trip to the continent while he was looking for a wife. It featured, naturally, Henrietta in the central role, but this time it was a full speaking role. This is very interesting, because even then her English was pretty poor, and so does show an attempt at least on her part to learn some of it. It was, according to everyone that I've read, terrible, turgid, and went for, wait for it, a gruelling seven hours. Now, there are two important takeaways from this. First, is that it once again shows Henrietta's policy of promoting herself and Charles through public display to the court. But, more importantly, at least for the masses and the future of theatre, it featured a number of women, including herself, in prominent speaking roles. The notion of women acting on stage was considered immoral by many, especially the Puritans, and met with a furious reaction. Most famously, a lawyer named William Prynne reacted to the presence of women on the stage and the immorality of contemporary theatre in general by publishing a diatribe called Historiomastics. He does not refer to Henrietta or Charles by name, but he wasn't exactly subtle. He stated that, in the past, kings and emperors who attended plays found them, quote, the just occasion of their untimely deaths. He saw dancing, a favoured pastime of Henrietta and the ladies of the court, as being, quote, heathenish, carnal, worldly, sensual, and misbeseeming Christians. And then came the kicker. He criticised female actors as being, quote, notorious whores, and quoted St. Paul, who had stated that women should not be allowed to speak in church. Why then, he asked, quote, 
any Christian woman be so more than horishly impudent as to act to speak publicly on the stage, perchance in man's apparel and cut hair, in the presence of sundry men and women. Coming so soon after the performance of The Shepherd's Paradise, there was no mistaking who this attack was aimed at, and royal retribution was swift. Prynne was brought before Star Chamber, convicted of libel, and condemned to stand in the pillory while his ears were chopped off, and then fined £5,000, branded, stripped of his degree, and sent to prison in perpetuity. Another pamphleteer who criticised Henrietta was flogged, branded, and similarly mutilated. And it was this sense of immorality, of Henrietta's Catholicism making her dangerously different to the English, presenting an existential threat to the nation, that was her biggest problem. This was, of course, an issue right from the very beginning of her reign. Remember how Charles had expelled her French attendants and her rather childish display of disrupting that Protestant service? Well, it didn't stop there. She used to make many pilgrimages across London to visit the Tyburn Gallows, the site of the execution of countless Catholic martyrs during the Reformation. When Charles heard about this, he realised how provocative and offensive this was and slapped her down, but a lot of damage had been done. I think it is likely that most English Protestants could have stomached having a French queen if she had conducted her religion discreetly and in private, but this is something that Henrietta was unwilling to do and for the most part, Charles let her. Possibly the most ostentatious sign of her faith was at her main residence of Somerset House. There, she commissioned Inigo Jones to build a Catholic temple, something that had been provided for in the marriage treaty. She personally laid the foundation stone for it in September 1632. It was formerly a tennis court, and according to one of Henrietta's priests, it had been very tastefully decorated. Quote, Rich tapestry served for walls, the most costly stuffs for a roof, the floor was strewn with flowers which diffused an agreeable odour. At the further end was seen an altar garnished with magnificent ornaments, the costliness and workmanship of which rendered them worthy of being compared with Solomon's temple. And this was just the temporary structure. It was to be presided over by Capuchin friars, who fascinated Londoners who were completely unfamiliar with monastic orders. Quote, People talked to them in their houses. They said that they were persons so strange, wearing dresses so extraordinary, leading so austere a life that everyone conceived a desire to see them. Accordingly, persons of quality, people of all conditions, who had never been out of the kingdom came to see them, as one goes to see Indians, Malays, savages, and men from the extremities of the earth. This natural curiosity, along with the strong evangelising efforts of these Capuchins, worried many good Protestants, and their fears were further piqued when the chapel was completed in December. It was a magnificent structure, on which no expense had been spared, and was a beacon of Catholicism and the true faith in Protestant England. More than 6,000 people attended the Mass there, and it was seen by many, Protestants and Catholics alike, as being the first blow in a new outbreak of counter-reformation in England. According to the Venetian ambassador, this allowed Catholics to come out into the open. Quote, Whereas in the past the Catholics could only hear masses at the embassies with great risk of being arrested when they came out, now the chapels of the Queen and of the ambassadors are not only frequented with freedom, but anyone who wishes a celebration in his own house can avoid the danger of penalty with very slight circumspection. This would be one thing if this was just existing Catholics coming out, 
But far more worrying to many was the Queen's evangelising influence spreading the old faith to members of the high nobility. In this, she was aided by the papal ambassador to England, George Conn. These started with members of her own household, people like Henry German and the niece of the late Duke of Buckingham, and later spread to other members of the Buckingham family. And then, well, I'm not going to go bore you with a ton of names that won't mean anything to you, but trust me, there were a lot. The most notable conversion, though, was that of the Countess of Newport, the wife of the King's Master of Ordnance. This was deeply worrying, not only because before she had been in staunch Protestant, but also because it was thought that if Catholicism could spread that high, how long before the king was completely surrounded by men with Catholic wives? Lord Newport appealed to the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord, who saw this as an opportunity to stamp down on the Catholics. He identified three key zealous evangelizers in the Queen's party and had the king tear them a new one. But he did not come down on George Conn because, according to the Venetian ambassador, quote, the king was not willing to offend the queen. Henrietta would not back down over this. She saw it as her right to practice her religion as she saw fit. And if that meant that others came to join her in the true faith, then that wasn't her fault. She, along with George Conn, engaged in bitter factional warfare with Archbishop Lord, leaving the king saying frustratedly to one of his political advisers, Thomas Wentworth, quote, I have a very hard task, and God, I beseech him, make me good corn, for I am between two great factions, very like corn between two millstones. The main battleground between these two factions was over a proposed anti-Catholic royal proclamation, which had the pithy title, Restraining the withdrawing of his majesty's subjects from the Church of England and giving scandal in resorting to masses. Henrietta knew that she had little chance of preventing it entirely, but she worked very hard to draw the sting of this proclamation. It was meant to be a great counterpunch to the resurgent Catholics and a slapping down of the Queen. Thanks to her lobbying, however, it became a toothless reminder of the continued existence of anti-Catholic laws that the King could enforce wherever he saw fit, but in practice rarely did. Henrietta, delighted at her victory, staged what historian Alison Plowden called a victory celebration at her chapel in Somerset House, where all her recent converts, including Lady Newport, gathered to celebrate Christmas. This further damaged not only Henrietta, but also Charles. Contemporary Lucy Hutchinson, admittedly a Puritan and so no fan of Henrietta, wrote the following of Charles I at this time in her memoir. He, quote, married a papist, a French lady of a haughty spirit and a great wit and beauty, to whom he became most exorious husband. By this means the court was replenished with papists. All the papists in the kingdom were favoured, the Puritans more than ever discountenanced and persecuted. So we can see here Henrietta becoming a really serious figure in courtly politics, with the king refusing to call a parliament and instead engaging in a period of personal rule. The court and the king's key friend and advisers were the centre of the action, and with power so concentrated in Charles's hands, anyone who could sway him this way or that suddenly found themselves propelled into a position of profound influence over the kingdom. Around her, ambitious Catholics were using her coattails to drag themselves into position of power, be it in matters of foreign policy, like I talked about in the start of the episode, or terms of religious toleration. Henrietta was a powerful player in the English court by the end of the 1630s. 
and this is best shown in the response shown by those opposed to her. When the Long Parliament was finally called in 1640, an event that we will get into more next week, it issued a long list of grievances against the king and how the kingdom had been governed. It then made a list of demands, one of which read, quote, Your Majesty will be pleased not to entertain any advice or mediation from the Queen in matters of religion or concerning the government of any of Your Majesty's dominions or for the placing or displacing of any great officers, councillors, ambassadors or agents beyond the sea or any of Your Majesty's servants attending your royal person, either in your bedchamber or privy chamber or any of the royal house or any of the royal issue after they shall attain five years. Remember how at the start of the episode Henrietta was alone, friendless and powerless? How far she had come in the last 15 years. But the very fact that the Long Parliament being called was a harbinger of the disasters that were to come. A religious and political conflict that broke out in Scotland would trigger a series of events that would lead all three of Charles' kingdoms to break out in civil war. A conflict that ended any sense of normalcy to Henrietta's queenship. This is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.